from CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. For families with kids, internet access is more important than ever with students learning at home. Coming up, insight into the Coloradans who lack access. There's a lot of overlap with kids whose parents are essential workers. Then, a one-two punch for fruit growers on the western slope. First a pandemic, then... Farmers say the cold snap did irreparable and large-scale damage. We'll hear from a peach farmer in Hotchkiss about a long night trying to save his crop. And later, some radio theater. A pandemic love story as two people hunt for toilet paper. Wait, was he flirting? Not that I objected, but... Who flirted during an apocalypse? It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. It looks like we'll see a patchwork of reopening as local communities decide for themselves when and how to ease stay-at-home restrictions. It is not so varied for schools, though. Classrooms are closed through at least the end of the school year. And that means Internet access at home is critical. And kids without it, who were already at a disadvantage, may be worse off now. So how many children in Colorado are in this predicament? A new study has an estimate. It comes from the nonpartisan Colorado Future Center. Executive Director Phyllis Resnick is one of the authors. And Phyllis, welcome to our show. Good morning, Ryan. Thank you for having me. Yeah. What number did you come up with? We estimate that about 54,000 children across Colorado, about one out of every 20 school-aged children, is in a household without access to the Internet. 54,000. We'll explore how you arrived at that number in a moment. But who are these school children without Internet access? What did you learn about them? The three things we learned about them um, that to me stood out the most and the one that um, probably jumped the most for me was that about 57 percent of them have a parent, at least one parent who's working in an essential industry. So the parent is juggling work and a a child who's who's trying to school at home. Um, They're disproportionately young. About half of them are elementary school age and they are disproportionately um, Hispanic as well disproportionately Hispanic. Let's unpack that in a bit. Are there regions in the state, though, with especially high numbers of students without Internet? It gets a little tricky to look at regions in the state because of the way that data are presented for us. Um, But what we're finding is the largest concentrations in southwest Colorado and then a cluster in the metro area in kind of the Northeast Metro Denver area are the two areas that jumped out as having the, the highest number of these children. Okay. What, what did you say was the percentage of those families with an essential worker? 50-something, right? 57% have one parent at least working in an essential industry. Yeah. Help us understand why it's noteworthy that many are the children of essential workers. That, that complicates the equation, doesn't it? I certainly think it does. I have a profile of a young child who's trying to adjust to schooling online. And, you know, when half of them are elementary school age, I think we know that those are not probably the most self-directed children in um, our school environment. 
And so I'm hearing from friends of mine who are parents that they're working very hard to keep their, their children focused on, on, you know, transitioning to digital learning. And so if you have a parent who is working outside the house at the same time, it seems to me that it would complicate uh, the ability to complete schoolwork in this in this environment. By the way, it's not just parents working. Older kids, too, are asked to help make ends meet. I spoke with the head of the Denver Classroom Teachers Association, Tiffany Choi. She knows of students, again, older students, getting jobs at King Supers right now. And here's her reflection on the digital divide. Just anecdotally from being a teacher, some students are able to regularly check email or check assignments online, whereas other students cannot. So I think many educators were already aware that this was a problem. But back to the younger kiddos, you find indeed that uh, many of the students without Internet access are elementary age. What do you make of that? And, And as you point out, these are students who aren't necessarily self-directed, you know? Um, yeah, I, I think it's it's a real challenge and, and perhaps an opportunity for Colorado to start think, thinking creatively about, you know, is, is just an Internet access enough to reach these students? And, you know, and one of the things we were hoping with the study was that we would spark a conversation about how we can then leverage as hopefully these children do start to get connected as we're starting to hear they are to develop programs that can be either community-based or school-based to help them along. So peer-to-peer learning groups, maybe other adults in the community are willing to step up Mm -hmm. and um, join Zoom calls with these younger children and help them. So, um, you know, I think we've got certainly a challenge, but perhaps, you know, we can show our creativity in the state for how to help these little children out. It occurs to me that younger children may also be less likely to have a smartphone and the kind of access that that might provide a teen, for instance. Just briefly, what were your methods for gleaning this information? I know you relied on something called the American Community Survey. Um, Does it ask about Internet connectivity? It does. And so the question it asks is, does anyone in your household access the Internet? And so if we think about a household, it's possible that the reason these numbers are skewed toward the smaller children is that some of those older children, the the middle and high school age kids, do actually have smartphones. And that, you know, by saying, yes, one one member of the household, perhaps that high school student, accesses the Internet through a smartphone, that would then take that household out of the universe of of children that we looked at for this study. My concern with that is that we might be underestimating the ability for those older kids to perform their schoolwork because I would think it would be difficult to have only smartphone access and be able to complete the kind of assignments that you would need to complete. And presumably there is data out there about the jobs that these households have, so you're able to do some matching. I reached a school social worker in Denver, Emilio Ramos, uh, who pointed out that the digital divide isn't just about academics. As a social worker, I look at the mental health and safety of students, where I have to work with a lot of families who have students who are at risk, 
for various reasons, poverty, gang violence, drugs, but also kids who suffer with trauma. So it makes it difficult to reach out to those kids that are at home. So the private conversations I would typically have with these students, it's a little scary who else is listening in the house that I might not know. So that's a little bit troublesome also. You know, school is a constant check-in for these students, and we don't have that. Right now, kids are not logging in, so we're not sure how they're doing. We're not sure if they're safe, they're healthy, all their basic needs are being taken care of. And so this isn't just about grades. It's not just about reading and writing and arithmetic. It's about their social and emotional health as well. I guess I'd like to wrap up here, Phyllis, with solutions. Tiffany Choi of the Denver Teachers Union applauded uh, public and private efforts. They're sending thousands of hotspots to families who don't have Internet access. That's coming out directly out of the district's budget. But also Comcast was working with DPS to say, hey, we have this two months free through our Internet Essentials program. You just have to be eligible and you have to apply. So that's when we found out there were still many families that were afraid. Basically, mostly our undocumented families. And so they're trying to change the application process with Comcast to make families more comfortable signing up for that temporary free access. Phyllis, I I know this goes beyond your study a bit, but what would you add when it comes to solutions to addressing this? I guess I would add that we don't... um... We don't provide technology only and then think that we've solved the problem. I think that your other guests have made us very well aware that there needs to be other support around school-aged children. And so I'm hoping that we do, as I mentioned earlier, start to develop ways to leverage the fact that these these school-aged kids are now connected and see what else we can do to help support them, to provide them both with with some support in their learnings. And, and as the gentleman who worked in social work suggested, find some ways to reach them and make sure that the other supports that they need are getting to them. And so we really did this study because, you know, we wanted the technological connection to be sort of the first step, but the then also step. to find ways to make sure that we help, you know, these children move forward in their learning with as many other supports as possible. Phyllis Resnick, executive director of the Colorado Futures Center, she co-wrote a study about families without internet access as online learning has become critical in the face of COVID-19. A double wallop on the western slope. In the midst of a global pandemic, natural disaster struck. A cold front barreled in from Canada just as peach trees were beginning to bud. It killed about half the peaches in the North Fork Valley. Cherries, pears, and apricots fared even worse. Farmer Harrison Top joins us. He's a partner in an organic fruit farm in Hotchkiss. And Harrison, thanks for being with us. Sorry it's under these circumstances. Hey, no. (laughs) It's nice to be able to to talk about this and and have a venue to to discuss it and let everybody know what's going on. Mm. Take us back to the recent night when temperatures plunged as low as 17 degrees. A freeze like that kicks off, I know, some frantic work. What did you and your partners do to try to save your fruit? Well, you know, we spent, that was last Monday night. Um, we spent, uh, well, no, I guess Monday, two weeks ago, 
uh, we spend T- time goes uh, by whole... strangely these days, doesn't it? <laughs> well, you know, and the the thing is, things don't stop on the farm after something like that. Mm-hmm. So we've we've been plowing forward uh, uh, regardless, unfortunately, you know, fortunately and unfortunately. But um, so we we had spent the the weekend uh, getting gathering all the materials we needed, um, wood and barrels we use. Uh, there are more modern ways to do this with propane, but we're still using uh, barrels and uh, lighting fires in the barrels. So we were staking all through the orchard. I'd estimate about 150 uh, barrels every 25 to 30 feet. And um, Just to we be clear, what you do is you, you burn the wood to keep the ambient temperature around the fruit up, huh? Well, yeah, so it's it's really this interesting sort of attempt to manipulate the the, the microclimate on the farm. So uh, sort of the first line of defense that any that, that most of the farmers out here use when it comes to a cold night is is what we call wind machines. Uh, they're relatively tall. They look like thin big windmills, but uh, rather than being powered by the wind, they're powered by uh, propane engines uh, at the base of the uh, at the base of the tower. And what those are what those are we hope are doing is they're taking the warm air that's rising because warm air rises and cold air sinks and it's taking that warmer air and it's mixing it down with the cold air and on a given night with the right conditions we can see about a three degree difference um with with that wind machine Hmm. and each wind machine covers anywhere from five to ten acres depending on its size so so that's the first line of defense but when we see the temperatures really starting to plunge uh like they were uh like they were doing um we uh we big take out the big guns and we got uh wood barrels um and we got old steel barrels and we started setting them up and in addition to trying to uh set them up strategically based on the way that we thought that the breeze might be moving that night what we're essentially trying to do is we're just trying to put more of that warm air up into the air so that as the wind begins to mix uh we're just we're we're hedging our bet with with adding more warm air again Given the proper conditions, given the right kind of night, we might be able to increase the the temperature in the orchard by another two degrees, three degrees if we're really lucky. Okay. So, and so, how how much damage do you think you were able to stave off? Like it would have been worse if you hadn't taken these steps, I gather. It would. You know, we were uh, we have seen some sort of interesting and surprising results. Uh, one is that we. Uh, our peach crop, we, we actually have two farms, one in Hotchkiss, Colorado, and one in Paonia. They're about 20 minutes apart. And um, in Paonia, we were able to preserve a huge volume of our peach crop, which was great. Okay. Um, so we really are seeing uh, very strong results with the peach crop. Um, unfortunately, we weren't able to do as well with the cherries. Uh, we, we did pretty well with the plums, actually. Um, the, the plums, uh, did you I say? We had a little little cough in the line there. The plums? Oh, I'm with the plums as well. The plums, okay. Uh, a live connection here with the Western Slope. And, and my understanding is that all these different fruits, you know, you've got uh, uh, cherries there, apricots, plums, mm-hmm. apples. They're all at different stages of blooming, so they're all going to be differently affected, right? <laughs> Absolutely. So it all has to do, and then uh, what you're looking at, you know, there may be different stages of buds on a single tree. So you may lose those that are farther matured, and hopefully the ones that are still tighter or still less developed are going to be the ones that that um, that will uh, will ultimately survive and bear fruit. So you really, technically, 
you need about 10% of the buds on the tree in order to get a crop. Um, however, it, it's important how those buds are, uh, are situated across the tree. But we have some tolerance to, to lose some of those buds. And, um, and it's just, it, but it's still a fight to keep them on. And so, like I was saying, in Paonia, we really did a pretty good job saving a lot of the peach buds. Hotchkiss, we had a much tougher time. Temperatures just dropped below what we really felt like we were able to in terms of the temperatures. And then on top of that, the next night and then three after. You'll, you'll forgive the tenuous connection with, with Harrison Top. He's our guest from the North Fork Valley. He's a fruit farmer who, because of a freeze in the region, has been dealing with lost crop there. And I do understand there can be a silver lining in a damaging freeze like this. Here's Frank Stoniker. He's a research scientist with CSU Extension. In fact, some of that freezing reduces our thinning requirements later on. So instead of having a big, heavy crop like we did last year and having huge thinning bills to get the fruits down to the right density on the tree where they make a nice big fruit, this year, hopefully, nature did some of that for us without knocking us entirely out of the picture. So there's, you know, a mixed picture here. I guess, Harrison Top, if, if you can bottom line this for me, how much did you lose? And, and I, I guess I ask that in terms of fruit, but in terms of your bottom line. Well, we anticipate... Uh, I'm guessing that I'm, we're still working in a range of, of, of loss. So we're looking at potentially a 30% to a 50% crop um, is, what we're, is what we're estimating at this point. So 30 to 50% um, of what you had expected? Of what we had expected. You might have lost up to um, 70% of your crop. That's remarkable. Yeah, and, and, that's a, and that's really hard on the bottom line. Um, you know, we're lucky that we have an insurable crop mm. that we were able to purchase crop insurance um, for the for the apples and for the peaches. So um, there will be, you know, we know there will be a little bit of money enough coming in to keep the lights on. Um, but we anticipate, yeah, probably I'm 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 guessing at most we'll hit our 50 percent of our revenue goals for the year. I want to put this moment into some context because CSU's Frank Stoniker predicts there may be an increase in bad freezes in the future. By and large, I think the trend is moving towards trees that are waking up a little bit too early in the spring, and then they get dinged by a possibly an unusually cold late freeze, or maybe it's just a normal freeze, but the trees are advanced in their physiology, and they're not ready for that hard freeze. Not the greatest news there. Uh, when you pile the pandemic on top of this weather disaster, Harrison, are you nervous about being able to sell your fruit this year? I, I know that farmers markets have made it to the list of essential businesses, but what's that picture? Well, certainly, we're we're glad we're pleased that we'll still have a mar- uh, a venue to sell fruit at farmers markets. However, um, I we're you know we are somewhat concerned that business will just be general that the uh, that. In Colorado, like many industries, uh, the tourist and the tourist tra- travel is is an important part of the business. Mm-hmm. And so, if those if that tourism is slowed, especially in the mountain towns where we find uh, some of our best markets, uh, that will be that will slow our business. Um, we had before the freeze been trying to uh, become really agile in the way that we were going to market fruit. We were trying to uh, be really adaptive in the way that we were approaching things. This definitely confuses that a little bit. So, um, you know, we are having to 
to triage a little bit, figure out which markets we want to go to um, and where we can realize the most profit, which is not necessarily um, what we want to be doing right now. But at the same time, you know, in a tough, potentially challenging marketing year, having less fruit, I guess, in some ways reduces the variables. I would hardly call that a benefit. Okay. Yeah. Uh, But it it does show, again, what a mixed picture this is and how you haven't necessarily chosen the easiest profession, Harrison Topp. Thanks so much for your time. Good luck to you. Thank you very much. Harrison Topp is an owner of Top Fruits. It's an organic farm in the North Fork Valley. And he joined us by phone from his farm in Hotchkiss. So empty shelves at grocery stores have become a frequent sight during the pandemic. But it's not just toilet paper that's out. It's pantry supplies like flour, sugar, and rice. CPR's Stina Sieg found that restaurants are stepping up to fill the gap. Mark Smith hadn't been to a grocery store in a while, so he had no idea certain foods were hard to find. Then he got his first request. So one of our customers asked if I could sell some flour. And And so Smith, the owner of Main Street Bagels in Grand Junction, thought, Why not? He started getting larger quantities of flour from his supplier. Right now he's getting about twice as much as normal and offering bags of it at cost. Smith says other hot items include whole wheat flour and yeast. Selling these helps keep the lights on and his employees' spirits up. It's sad to look out around the downtown and there's hardly any cars here and people on the sidewalk. It makes us feel better to see people coming in. But no more than five at a time for protection. Main Street Bagels has become part of an informal network of eateries across the county and country, offering a kind of safety net beyond grocery stores. It has been incredible. Grand Junction resident Kaylin Roach says it's a relief knowing that if she runs out of something, she has options. Her husband just picked up ingredients for bread, plus tomatoes and beans from Dos Hombres, a Mexican restaurant in nearby Clifton. And it's much easier than fighting the crowds at the grocery store. Even once things get back to normal, she plans to support Dos Hombres. Our birthday tradition is we go out for tacos. And so this year we know exactly where we're going out for tacos. Providing necessities can also strengthen relationships with existing customers. In Denver, the owner of Session Coffee isn't brewing coffee anymore, but he's still delivering beans. Randy Runyon is one of his customers. He spoke over Skype. Being able to, you know, just see him, even if it's just him dropping some coffee off on my front porch, you know, it's, it's great. And for Runyon, a self-described extrovert, that brief moment is a tiny recharge and a connection to his life before the pandemic. I'm Stina Sieg, CPR News. And Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour with a statewide project that attempts to slow down the news cycle for just a little while to really appreciate what goes on in a single day in Colorado during this pandemic. I'm Ryan Warner, here with CPR News. This is Mike Smith from Louisville, Colorado. Colorado Public Radio is an absolute treasure. I really appreciate the talented reporters and the journalists who keep us connected to news that matters most to us and to our communities, which is especially important 
given everything that's going on. Colorado Public Radio needs our support like never before. Please join me in contributing to Colorado Public Radio so it can keep us connected to our community and the cutting edge of music. Hi, I'm Vic Vela, host of the new podcast, Back From Broken. On a new special episode, we talk to the Lumineers. Their latest album is about the effects of addiction on generations of a family. I think one of the goals was to try to write it, and if she heard it, she would feel like it was telling the truth. Conversation and music from the Lumineers on the latest episode of Back From Broken. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Each day of the pandemic, we're met with an information overload. If only you could press pause and really absorb what happened in a single day, the heroics, the lives lost and saved. Well, you can, thanks to a statewide collaboration that CPR News is a part of. It's a day in the life of 60 Coloradans, and veteran journalist Laura Frank is managing the project called COVID Diaries Colorado. Laura, welcome to the show. Oh, Ryan, thanks for having me. Help us understand the scope of this reporting and really what its aim is. Well, you will appreciate this because you understand a little bit of what it's like to be producing uh, news in the middle of a pandemic. Less than a month ago, um, a, a few dozen news organizations got together to talk about how could we better serve the public if we work together and how could we get a picture of what's happening in the entire state at one time. And in just the past uh, few weeks, we've been able to put that together. Um, more than 40 news organizations uh, are sharing content now with, about their reporting on the pandemic. But on April 16th, 22 of those news organizations actually set out to document um, the lives of Coloradans and how they were impacted um, by what's going on. And the stories turned out, as, as you might imagine, to show an incredible range of, of grit and um, resilience, also you know, some fear and some um, uncertainty. But it gives the entire picture. And, and starting this Sunday, we're going to share those stories with the rest of the state. And, and it's a pretty um, historic thing to have happen um, in these historic times. One of the stories CPR contributed features Dr. Peter Stubenrauch. He's a critical care pulmonologist with National Jewish in Denver. He was actually working in the ICU at St. Joseph that day, where all of his patients had COVID-19. And again, all on this one day in Colorado, uh, all of them were on ventilators. I'm actually sitting in the call room right now um, after having been into everyone's room. And I'd like to take a quick second and eat a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. I've been doing that for years. I just bring my own food. Although I have to admit they've been bringing some pretty good food around from restaurants that are donating food to the healthcare workers. Um, anyway, uh, I got finished seeing everybody. I went into everyone's room. What I like to do on all of these mechanically ventilated patients is do a couple maneuvers with a ventilator to see, number one, how stiff their lungs are, and number two, just take a few minutes and see how they breathe on their own. There's some adjustments we can make on the ventilator. Some did better than others. Interestingly enough, in terms of people's lung stiffness, everyone has similar numbers, which is kind of in keeping with the fact that everyone has 
a similar story, meaning they have COVID, they're having respiratory failure uh, resulting in the need for mechanical ventilation. So it does nothing to bolster my memory of each individual patient, although getting into the rooms helps me put put faces with the people as well. So um, I'm going to be having a family meeting with, with a, over the phone with our palliative medicine service and, and the family members of one of my patients. And we're, we're considering a procedure where we put a tracheostomy in place. Um, and so that'll be, should be an interesting discussion. So that's a video diary that Dr. Peter Steubenrauch uh, collected as part of this day in the life project. And my goodness, Laura Frank, his comments are a mix of the mundane, you know, his, his PB and J. Yes. And the and the profound these life or death questions is that what you saw in other stories that kind of mix? Absolutely, absolutely. In addition to doc, Dr. Stubenrock, the ICU doctor, we um, got video diaries from a preschool teacher who is still teaching as an essential person in the economy, mm. um, a dairy farmer who's who can't turn off the cows, you know, <laughs> um, and and a researcher from uh, CU Anschutz, who actually may have come upon a protein that is, that is the key to the severe lung damage that, that Dr. Steubenrauch was just talking about. And if she can um, further that research, she was up till almost midnight on this day that we were reporting, uh, trying to write a grant to, to dig into this to try to help Coloradans and, and all of the world fight this disease. Why don't we listen to one uh, other diary entry or a portion of one? Beatrice Rangel recorded this for the Greeley Tribune, which is a part of this this massive statewide project. Beatrice's father was the first worker to die in the COVID-19 outbreak at the JBS meatpacking plant. It's a cold, snowy day here in Millican, Colorado, which is where I'm recording this from. I am trying to get ready. It's the day after my dad's funeral. I think um, I was thinking about Dad's funeral and um, how hard it was with this whole COVID-19 thing, other than his death. The fact that um, I could not hug my brother, I could not hug my mom, I could not hug my siblings or my friends that I haven't seen for a long time. Um, had family from all over the place, but I could not really be near them or around them. Just could see them from afar. There's, I've never experienced something so bad for a funeral um, to say goodbye to your father and not be able to hug anybody or be near anybody. And you just mourning um, by yourself. Beatrice Rangel in Millican recorded for the Greeley Tribune. Laura Frank, thanks so much for the preview. You're so welcome, Ryan, and I, I hope you remind your listeners they'll be able to get all of this content on your website. Indeed, you can find these COVID Diaries Colorado uh, starting Sunday at CPR.org, and we'll have stories all next week on air and online. As we've said already this hour, time moves strangely during this period of physical distancing. It can be tough to remember what day it is. In the midst of all this, some people have turned to creative projects as an outlet. 
We asked listeners to tell us about their crisis crafts, and my colleague Avery Lill is here once again to share how you all responded. Hi, Avery. Hi, Ryan. I know this is a big part of how you're coping right now. You wrote a quarantine, kind of like a mini graphic novel about your anxiety. But what, what are others doing with idle hands? Right. I'm not the only one crafting. We heard from a lot of folks who are making all sorts of art. Some people are crafting by themselves. Others are making art with people in their home or connecting with people online. Ben Skeen of Denver has gotten into making collages. He sent us a reflection on what it's been like making art with his five-year-old daughter, Imogene, who he says is a voracious artist. Before I was staying at home, I had joined in with the art here and there. But with all the time we've had at home, I've been inspired and drawn to art by Imogene. I tend to get hung up on worries that anything I create won't be perfect. And that prevents me from even trying sometimes. Even when I was a kid, my art supplies would sit there and last for years because I was worried about wasting them. I'm the guy who buys a moleskin notebook and lets it sit empty because I don't want to waste pages on just anything. Imogene doesn't have that problem. She uses up everything. Stickers, paints, watercolors. We've got to reorder them all the time. She's not concerned about saving stuff for just the right project. She just creates in the moment, has fun, and makes incredible art. So I'm learning from her how to let go of my fears and reservations and just make art. Collage is great for me. I've always enjoyed making found poetry or blackout poetry where you turn one text into a new poem. So the the challenge of transforming junk mail or old magazines into something new is familiar. I also don't have to depend on my very weak drawing skills, so that sort of eases the lingering perfectionist. I definitely intend to keep up uh, collage uh, when this ends. I'm an attorney, and in my job, I can't take a picture of what I did during the day. And when I try to tell people what I've done, people either get bored or annoyed. And that's very frustrating because I derive a lot of self-worth from having something concrete that I did in a day that I can point to or tell somebody about. And art really fulfills that need for me. Plus, it's a great way to spend time with my daughter and to just bask in her creative energy. It's funny, I can identify with him not wanting to touch the art supplies. I have these markers that have sat untouched in a desk drawer for years, Avery. (laughs) <laughs> I know I can, I can, it resonates with me too. There are craft supplies that I've dug out of drawers that I haven't touched in years that I'm finally getting to. Um, and here's Ben talking with Imogene about a collage that he made while she painted. You know what I like about your picture over there? Oh. I like the star walking the star in a leash. How'd you come up with that? And now I just painted some painting. You just painted it? That's not a star, it's a cat at the bottom of a face paint. Oh, it's cat wearing face paint and the star is walking the cat wearing face paint? Uh-huh. All right. <laughs> a budding surrealist there. <laughs> Watch out, Dolly. Uh, I want to acknowledge uh, that one of the responses that we got on Twitter came from somebody who's working overtime in medical software as well and doesn't have time to pick up a hobby. We know that there are essential workers on the front lines of this pandemic who aren't able to stay at home. So It's not that people necessarily find themselves with more free time. Ben even said he doesn't find himself with more free time. He and his work both, he and his wife both work, and Imogene would normally be in preschool, but with school out, he and his wife stagger their day and 
work from home and parenting shifts. So people are just spending their time differently and having a creative outlet can be helpful. What are other crafts people are picking up? Some really fun stuff. One of our listeners bedazzled a lawn ornament. Another (laughs) is making miniatures. Akira Ferguson is making her first quilt. At first, having this large project was just a way to fill time at the end of the day after I did some work at home. But then it started helping me set a new routine and adjust to this new way of living. Because I'm a bit of a homebody already, I didn't have an issue with being at home, but it did feel like my life was being disrupted. And this helped me set a new routine and spend extra time at home doing something that I enjoyed. What about you, Avery? I mentioned the quarantine, but uh, have you created something new since then? I've been doodling a lot. I drew a little storybook for my nephews over the weekend about a tangled slinky. (laughs) How about you, Ryan? A tangled slinky. Um, I guess I'm finding comfort in chores more than crafts. I've come to love vacuuming. Um, Yeah. Okay. Avery, thanks so much for being with us. You're welcome. And it's Avery Lil, my colleague on Crisis Crafting and on Twitter at Colorado Matters. We've posted Ben's collage, Imogene's painting, and Kira's quilt. At Colorado Matters, we created a craft we thought you might enjoy, a coloring project, three versions of our new logo, beginner, intermediate, and advanced. Well, a number of you put crayon to paper and sent us the results. And we've chosen two winners in our coloring contest. First off, eight-year-old Riley Rank of Aurora. Here's our judge, CPR's marketing VP, Jody Gersh. I chose Riley's coloring sheet as one of our winners because the colors are so bright and the pastels just remind me of spring and have such a joyful feeling. Congratulations, Riley. And our second winner is a kid at heart. Mia McCloy lives in Longmont. I chose Mia's coloring sheet as one of our winners because I love how much she is showing her Colorado state pride. Using the state logo and colors makes me feel connected and brings a sense of community. Congratulations, Mia. So Mia and Riley will each get the Colorado Mountain Club coloring book, which includes Lone Eagle Peak, Mount of the Holy Cross, and the Maroon Bells. We will also feature your coloring submissions in our Twitter feed at Colorado Matters, and you can still download, print, and color the pages. Our colleagues at CPR Classical recently got a music request, and they couldn't resist fulfilling it. Hi, CPR Classical. I'm Brian Saunders from Denver. What would you think about airing Ode to Joy from Beethoven's Ninth Symphony this Friday afternoon at 5 p.m.? We would ask everyone to turn up their radios and blare it out their windows in support of healthcare workers, first responders, and all those working to keep things running. And so today, Friday at 5 p.m., CPR Classical will air Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. Here's program director Monica Vischer. If ever there was a composer who felt isolation... It was Beethoven. I mean, imagine having this profound musical gift, but you're losing your hearing. The world's greatest composer going deaf. He almost took his own life over it, but he fought that battle and instead concluded the world had to have his music. And this hymn to brotherhood set to Friedrich Schiller's poem, Ode to Joy, is just what we need to feel the human connection that we're all missing right now.
honoring essential workers in the COVID-19 fight at 5 p.m. on CPR Classical. Who knew toilet paper would become a status symbol, one of the stranger outcomes of the pandemic? Writer Monterey Buchanan imagines a mother and daughter's quest for TP in her story, The Toilet Paper Baron of Metro Denver. She entered it into a flash fiction contest that our colleagues at Denverite held, and we got actors at Stories on Stage to bring it to life. The setting, a grocery store where failing to social distance gets you zapped with the human equivalent of a bark collar. The Toilet Paper Baron of Metro Denver by Monterey Buchanan. The groceries sat patiently in the back of my car as I smoothed my hair into something like my typical bob in the rearview mirror. We must look our best, even in a crisis. My mother's voice crackled over the video call. I felt my lips curve up in a smile. Good to know my mother's sense of humor was still intact, even if mine was not. I'd gotten all of our food at the little natural market where my mom usually shopped, but the tension of driving to every grocery store in Denver only to be greeted by empty toilet paper shelves, was really starting to build up in my neck and shoulders. If King Supers didn't have any, I was in trouble. Mom must have sensed my frustration. Are you sure you can handle it, dear? I I can meet you if... No, Mom. Do not come down here, I said tersely, trying to keep the panic out of my voice. My mom hated any suggestion that she couldn't do things on her own, at the best of times. So the reminder that being old and having asthma put her at high risk was not to be mentioned out loud. You could text Adam if they haven't got the toilet paper in the store, Mom suggested. Adam, my narcissistic ex, had connections at a toilet paper company and had once dubbed himself the Toilet Paper Baron of Metro Denver. This was a forgettable fact back before all this started, but it now made him Mr. Darcy, at least in the eyes of all the mothers in Denver, mentioning to their daughters that he had 10,000 rolls a year. I reluctantly brought up our last text chain, considering undoing all the progress I had made in therapy and contacting him. Then I saw the picture he'd sent, about three months ago, just as the toilet paper shortage had started. Himself, of course, in a suit, in front of a giant wall of toilet paper, fresh off an assembly line somewhere. The caption read, Miss me now, babe? True. These were desperate times. But not that desperate. I can still see you if you roll your eyes on camera, honey, Mom's voice said. There's no need to call Adam. I'll get the paper, I said, trying to hide a sudden blush and turning off the video chat. The supermarkets were all trying to maintain an illusion of normalcy. Bright lights, workers in uniform, front displays of fruits and vegetables stacked high. This was all shattered 
by a heady smell of bleach the second I walked through the doors and the box of now mandatory social distancing arm bracelets in an assortment of bright colors as if that made them less weird. As soon as I put on a pastel blue one, it zapped me on the wrist. Please back up. Maintain six feet of social distance, the little robot voice said. Seriously? There was no one near me. Sorry, Olivia, a voice behind me said, and I turned to see Theo with a shy half-grin and several days' worth of beard stubble backing away. His normally bright blue eyes were surrounded by dark circles. Funny to think that before all this, I had been considering asking Theo out for a drink, back when such things were possible. But we all had other stuff to worry about now. Think fast, I said, tossing a red bracelet his way, which he disinfected and then put on. You, uh, headed to the war zone? He asked, pointing to the toilet paper section, smiling and leaning against his cart for a moment. It rolled past the six-foot limit, and when he ran forward to get it back, his bracelet zapped him. I am, I said, biting back a giggle. I knew I shouldn't laugh but it was the first time there'd been anything to laugh about in a month. Wait. Was he flirting? Not that I objected, but who flirted during an apocalypse? I finally liked a decent guy and wanted him to like me back. No, this was my imagination. Besides, we all had bigger stuff to worry about anyway. We walked together, sort of and reached a long line of exhausted people on the back wall where the toilet paper was stocked, kept orderly by three grocery store employees in yellow rubber gloves. Even from my position at the back, I could hear the front worker yelling, One packet per shopper! There were several people now between Theo and me, thanks in part to a woman with a giant brown purse who pushed past me, completely ignoring the zap on both our wrists. During the long wait, I texted Theo, serious this time. You okay? There was a brief silence, then he texted back. My dad's still going to work, essential employee. Yeah, he definitely had better things to worry about than flirting. I sent back a sad face emoji. Thanks. Up all night worrying. Me too. My mom's high risk. Suggested I text the Baron to get the toilet paper. Do not contact that jerk. You're doing so well. Hope I don't have to. Can I help? Why did he have to be so sweet? There was nothing he could do to help, no matter how badly I wanted him to. I texted him back. No, but thanks. All this is the worst, isn't it? Suddenly... Yells and screams came from the front of the line. A full-on brawl had broken out over a 24-pack of Charmin, the cacophony growing louder as the grocery workers pulled the lady with the purse away from a man in a face mask, clutching the toilet paper like his firstborn son. The workers occupied, it became a free-for-all, everyone pushing past and stepping over each other in desperation. I tried to get in there, but with so many bracelet zaps, I spent too much time cradling my arm to get anywhere near the shelves. Soon, it was too late. 
The lady with the purse was finally restrained and another worker held up a gloved hand. We're out for today. Looking past him, I saw it was true. The shelves were completely empty. My stomach sank. Please, I have been all over the city. My mom doesn't have anyone else to shop for her. We restock in a few days. Try again then. The other grocery store workers were on their feet now, looking angry, disheveled, but ready for round two if I started it. <sighs> there was nothing left to do but go with the nuclear option. Minutes later, standing next to my car, I pulled up Adam's number on my phone, scrolling quickly past the ugly breakup texts and the picture, composing a new message. Hey, babe. Sorry to ghost you. Need a favor. Ugh. Just writing it made my fingers shake and stomach churn. Then a voice behind me called, Hey, Olivia, think fast. Theo was posed like one of the nuggets shooting a three-pointer, and a second later, a four-pack of toilet paper landed in my empty shopping basket. Thanks. I called back, blushing hard again. Had he really managed to snag a second pack for me? No problem, he called. I waited until he got in his car and drove away before video messaging my mother, disinfecting and holding up the toilet paper with a triumphant grin. Look what I found for you, I said. My mom adjusted her glasses and squinted at the screen. That's great, dear, but I think that's for you. What? My mother motioned for me to turn the packaging around. On the other side, a note read, Olivia, drinks when the apocalypse is over? Stay safe. Theo. The Toilet Paper Baron of Metro Denver by Monterey Buchanan, a winner of Denverite's Flash Fiction Contest. Actors from Stories on Stage brought it to, brought it to life. You heard Jessica Robley, Drew Horwitz, and Jeree Hinshaw. Another fiction winner next week, a story inspired by doctors and nurses. <laughs>